Hello and welcome to the Faber Academy podcast. My name is George Miller, and this is the sixth in our series of podcasts entitled Inside Writing. I was lucky enough to meet up with my guest in this programme, Australian novelist Catherine Heyman, when she was running an intensive course, Start Your Novel in a Week, at the Faber Academy this summer. The aim behind these podcasts is simple. If you're a writer struggling to get started, make progress, or reach the finishing line, we hope these conversations will provide you with a mixture of practical advice, suggestions for reading, and encouragement to help you keep going. And just as important, we hope they'll make entertaining listening, and remind you that all writers, however experienced, come up against obstacles from time to time. Catherine Heyman is the author of five acclaimed novels, the most recent of which, Floodline, was published last year. She's also written for the theatre and the radio, and received a wide variety of awards and nominations for her work. As well as directing the fiction programme for Faber Academy Australia, Catherine is director of the Australian Writers' Mentoring Programme. Though based once again in her native Australia, Catherine spent many years studying, writing and teaching here in the UK. It was here, for example, that her first novel, The Breaking, was originally published in 1997. In this interview, we discuss not only Catherine's own career as a novelist, but also her experience as a mentor to new writers. She talks too about the importance of hard work versus talent, the balance between planning and intuition, and her secret desire to be a judge on a TV talent show. I knew that Catherine had wanted to be an actor when she was young, so I began a conversation by asking her whether the desire to write had coexisted with that or come along later. I'd always wanted to write and always knew that I would, but it seemed enormous and impossible and ludicrous and presumptuous, as if being an actor is less presumptuous. I think that the step in front of me to become an actor was clearer. I knew how to apply for drama school. I I somehow knew how to do an audition. I actually had no idea how one would go about becoming a novelist. Just I couldn't quite get to grips with that. Also, I think secretly I thought that if I was an actor, everyone might love me. And if I was a writer, that would then that would be quite invisible, which, you know, was probably a fairly accurate assumption. When I first became a writer, I became a playwright because I had been an actor. And so then as a result of being an actor, I, I knew directors. I knew how the a little bit of how the theatre world worked. So I had an idea for something and a burning desire to write. I knew that if I wrote a play, I could find someone to take it to. And so that's what I did. I, I wrote a play and then was, was asked to be a playwright in residence for a theatre company, wrote another play. And my my kind of abiding memory of that time is that I'd written this play and cycling into rehearsals with all these other actors, having a great time in rehearsals, laughing. Actors really have a great time in rehearsals, having a fantastic time. And I was sort of irrelevant by that stage. And I had to cycle back to my little studio alone and invisible. So my hunch had been right. And then, of course, I, I chose the even less visible or less directly visible route of becoming a novelist. It turned out that I quite liked being alone. But still, I suppose, seeing the work go into the world, even even in, even though not in the sort of immediate sense of an audience sitting there and appreciating or laughing or whatever or responding, but nonetheless, there being an audience there for what you were writing. Oh, absolutely. And actually, the really beautiful experience of being a playwright 
that one doesn't really get as a novelist was the collaborative thing. So I would write a play and then a designer would imagine it and create a visual sense of how this world might look. Actors would bring life to it. No, I loved that, completely loved it. And of course, yes, then that, that moment of sitting in an audience, watching other people responding. You don't get that as a novelist. But there are lots of restrictions to, to writing for, for theatre as well, which can be great. But ultimately, those restrictions were not, it wasn't the place that I wanted to, to stay. You know, the kind of constraints of there are so many people on stage, we have this budget, we have this amount of time. That four-week rehearsal period actually has just been cut down to, to two and a half weeks. All of that, I, I think I decided or, or, or felt compelled to go into a way of writing where I could sort of follow my own vision a little bit more. And, of course, as a novelist, you're much more following your own vision and much more Annie Dillard in... Um, writing life describes it as following a, a, a kind of almost invisible thread and you don't know where it's going to lead you just keep following the thread I really love that um, and that that experience of, of just following the thread is very exciting you get a lot less of that as a playwright the thing that I most loved as an actor was physical theatre and that really does inform my writing you know it's something that that is noticed about my writing and something that I, I notice in myself as a writer that the sense of physicality is really important to me. The, the way the body leads, uh, the way people feel things through the body and the way characters respond to each other I think is is very informed by those early experiences as an actor. And also it seemed to me the way people speak and the way they breathe and the, you know how their voice comes alive on the page in the same way that if, it, if they were going to be transferred to the stage, the voice would come alive. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, my sense of dialogue and, and interaction between people, again, when I think about how I communicate ideas to new writers, dialogue is something that I've had to think very hard about how to, how to teach or how to explain to new writers because it's something that I think, oh, I just I, that's instinctive for me. But, of course, it's not instinctive it's come from those sort of, you know, being on stage, listening to dialogue, having been quite immersed in in nothing but dialogue as 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 drama. So I, I you know, immensely grateful for that. Now, tell me then how you came to be a novelist, having having spoken about your early theatrical background. You had left Australia, is that right? And you became a novelist while you were living in in Scotland. It's funny, isn't it? That question, how you became a novelist. It's it, it it's so tricky. Do, did I decide that or, or or was it there waiting? You know, I think it was there waiting. I'd actually, I was in Britain as an actor and I started to write what I thought might have been uh, short stories. I think it began as a short story, fueled by a, a, a sort of an odd image and a, a, an odd memory, things that didn't seem entirely connected. And then I wrote I wrote that first novel or most of it while I was doing an MA in writing under um, the tutelage of um, the Caribbean poet E.A. Markham, who was extraordinary, wonderful writer and, and for me, a, a brilliant teacher and coach. So I wrote this. I, I remember saying to him, you know, the idea of writing a novel. So although I had this kind of, you know, big egg of a, desire and story 
bursting. You know, I could feel it in me. But intellectually, the the idea, I mean, it's the Queen of Sheba thing. Who the hell do you think you are? The idea that I would say, well, yes, actually, I, I, I'm going to write a novel. It, it still seemed um, enormous to me. So rather than say that, I said um, at the, I was doing quite a lot of performance poetry. So at first I said, so I'm going to write, I'm writing this very long performance piece and it's it's kind of one character. It's very, very long and it's one character um, over several episodes. And he said, oh, okay, that sounds that sounds interesting. How, how long? And I said, I don't know. You know, I think it, it's certainly a couple of hours performance-wise. And then I said, well, actually, maybe it's, it's really it's short stories interlinked, but all with the same character and, and things change and develop. And, and he said, well, you know, I, I think what you're describing is a novel. <laughs> so I, I think somehow being given... And was, that a, was that a relief to, it, to be able to... It is actually a novel, confess. It really was. Um, terrifying, but it did feel as though he had said to me, it taken something from me and also given me something. It felt like he had given me permission and I was immensely grateful for it, immensely relieved and also quite terrified. But I don't know, somehow I, I did feel, however tenuously, somehow him saying, this is this is actually what you're doing and also you can. It did feel... I, I'm not sure if I'm just imposing this retrospectively or if it is true, but I think it is true, that it felt like he was a little bit alongside me. I think just that sense of having someone to to kind of go back to and go, well, you know, actually this is impossible, and just have a sense that he would go, it's completely not impossible. One can completely do it. And and so I would kind of feel again that I could. And and was the path to publication a smooth one or was, or was that a, a bumpy road? <laughs> For that first novel, it was um, ludicrously smooth, actually. I think what I hadn't quite realised was that, you know, it wouldn't always be as smooth, <laughs> that there will always be some bumps in the road and, and you know, you, you're going to get them at some point. But that first one, I, I wrote about two-thirds of the, of the novel and then met uh, the agent Giles Gordon, who at that time was uh, a very well-known literary figure and he was absolutely my dream agent. So I, I completely had him in my sights. So I met him and said, I'm going to send you my manuscript. Sent him my manuscript and then, you know, just spent the next sort of six weeks feeling sick with anxiety. And um, I do I do remember phoning the agency, maybe after about three weeks, phoning the agency and um, his assistant picked up the phone and I said, I'm just wondering if um, Giles Gordon is away on holidays. <laughs> and he said, she, she said, um, well, you know, what's your name? And I, I thought, I, I can't actually say who I am. And I was completely unable to think of any name except Michael. So I said, Michael. <laughs> and the, his assistant said, I'm sorry, Michael. And I went, yes, and then hung up. <laughs> And then rolled about on my floor, laughing my head off at how utterly, utterly ridiculous I was. <laughs> so anyway, that, that um, mortification aside, and I, I, she did go on to become a very good friend <laughs> and calls me Michael mm. on special occasions. After longer than I thought was reasonable, but actually is a perfectly standard length of time, um, Giles said he would like to represent me. 
and then you know had an auction for the book and sold it to um the highest bidder uh for a two book deal and you know that that was how i thought it it would go forever that you know that that then that book would make huge amounts of money sell millions of copies and that would be the sort of fairy tale forever because of course everyone is reading and you know so i think it was fantastically easy and 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 a delight but i think there was so much i didn't know and so much i hadn't questioned even to the degree of it it wouldn't have occurred to me i mean i i i speak to some I mentor writers and sometimes they'll get a deal and they'll say, well, I'm not sure about the list of, you know, I've got an offer from them and them, but I'm not sure about their list. And I think, oh, my goodness, it did not occur to me to to look at the list it, it, or to think they have offered less money, but actually they bring this other thing that might be very good for me over a long career. I was, in a strange way, completely naive to all of that. I I, I did just let it happen. Are there things that you wish you had known then? Or are you happy to have discovered them by experiencing them? Um, that's a tricky question because temperamentally, I am a person with a great gift in the area of regret. So I, I'm not a great person to ask that because I will always find something, you know, to 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 unpick and and perhaps I could have and if only I had have. Both and. I'm very grateful for for the way it's worked out and and the sort of process. But I think there are decisions that, you know, I, I, yes, I think it's more that I'm astonished rather than I regret. I think that um, it does sort of astonish me that I didn't ask more questions. And I think perhaps if I had, I might have at various points throughout my career made slightly different decisions, yeah. You mentioned mentoring. You 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 work at you part part of your time you spend mentoring authors in Australia, and I get the sense that that's a very important role for you. Something you think very deeply about and and take exceptionally seriously. I really do. I think only in recent years have I kind of allowed myself almost to admit that I've taught writing, you know, for a long time, almost as long as I've written. You know, when I was doing. My master's, I taught undergraduates, like lots of writers, that's been a sort of alongside career. And I think, I think actually in recent years, there has been a resurgence of respect for, for the idea of the, the artistic mentor or the writing mentor or, or, or that, that role in general, not just in creative fields. So I think that's really pleasing to see. But I think for me personally, I, there has been over the last couple of years I've, I've I've really allowed myself to acknowledge how much pleasure I take in that role and um, how pleasing it is when when people I've worked with blossom and succeed and also that provides a great justification for me I'm a very great fan of um, tacky talent shows and it sort of allows me to justify it in the flimsiest way possible. So I always feel that I can say to my family, no, the thing is, I just love to see people blossoming in their talent. And so actually it's the same tendency that makes me a, a good uh, teacher and mentor. That's that's why I like watching Britain's Got Talent or Australia's Got Talent rather than acknowledge that, no, I, I just like to watch a little bit of trash and, and you know, <laughs> 
So if, if we see you pop up as a judge in a talent show, we'll know the reason why. It's to extend your mentoring career. I would so love it. I would so love to do that. If I could figure <clears throat> out how to make writing televisual, I'd be completely pitching um, So You Think You Can Write. But in reality, most of writing is sitting and writing, which doesn't really make for great television. When mentoring goes well, Catherine, what, what is it? Is it something alchemical or is it possible to kind of analyse it and say what it is that contributes to it really working and, you know, getting that blossoming that you talked about? I think there's a few things. Some of it is alchemical. Some of it is magic. And there are some moments that, you know, that, that something just does really work beautifully. Mentoring is very particular. It's not the same as, you know, therapy or, or counselling. It does start where you are, but it very much assumes that you, as the mentee, the person being mentored, that you have a vision of a thing that you want to get to, a place you want to get to. So that's clearly one really crucial element, that the person being mentored has a desire. I mean, everything comes back to desire, everything in narrative, everything. everything. So, so that's, that's a really crucial part, the strength of the desire. Obviously, the, the connection between the, the, the two people and, and the sense of a, I was going to say a shared vision, but that's not quite it because it's very much the responsibility of, of creating a piece of art or a piece of, of, of writing of any sort is on the person doing the creating. So the mentor's role is, is, you know, the kind of coach calling on to not to the thing that I think you are or that I am, but that the thing that you want to be. So it's quite a, a delicate little dance. And I think that's important. The sort of really magical blossoming does happen when that combination of the real strength of the person's desire is there, the connection between the the mentor and the, the protege, if you like, and really truthfully the, the willingness of the of the new writer to, to to rework and to well to work and and to to engage quite deeply and there have been a few experiences of me really seeing someone completely transform their books and 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 as a result having both a sort of creative blossoming and also the kind of external sort of success that comes from that too and are you sometimes taken by surprise by the progress someone makes or do you, you know, after the, these years of teaching, do you have a pretty shrewd sense of who is actually going to stay the course and, and make it and who is perhaps going to fall by the wayside and realise that writing is not actually a vocation? I have a sh pretty shrewd sense of talent and I'm rarely wrong. <laughs> but over many years, what I've come to observe is that if there's a choice between just talent or just work, work wins. Because really. it goes it gets to the end. Absolutely. And that's been so I have I've had almost the opposite experience that there have been several times when I have worked with people who I have a moment that I think, oh I'm not I'm not sure. I'm I I you know I'm not I'm not sure that you've got it. And they work and they I mean I don't just mean hours I don't mean sitting down and just typing I mean they do the really hard work of rethinking and re-engaging and questioning asking themselves and then rewriting and re you know not just changing a word or two and transform 
their work. So I've been surprised by a, a few people over the years that have have um, gone on to have have really great success, and because what what they've what they've applied is you know real determination and work. Of course, the best is talent plus hard work. Those two things together, are, are, that's that's alchemy. <laughs> you know, that's that's magic, isn't it? But the talent bit is isn't teachable in reality. That's what you bring to it. That's there are things, conditions that can be provided to help foster that. You know, there are there are questions that can be asked to help find it. But the reality is that people have different degrees of innate talent. But you know, craft, the work ethic, the sort of well, and as I said, the, the you know the questions to ask and the ability to rethink all of those things can be taught. Once you'd got your own first novel out, how did you develop as a novelist? I mean, was was that then you were on you're on the path, and you know you you could then work through these questions for yourself and progress by practicing, and or was there still some kind of outside? influence working on you in order to to refine and develop Mm, such a good question what i remember is embarking on this second novel with a sense of oh my god i can't i haven't i haven't got that person where is that person so really i found that yeah an, an interesting process because you felt you described the first novel as an egg. You felt that you you had delivered this egg, and and where was the next egg? Was that was that was that the sort of position that you felt yourself to be in? Well, absolutely. That 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 first one had been sort of bursting out, and this second one was was different in a number of ways. I had a contract. I had a sense of needing to deliver it fairly quickly, and I no longer had that person saying, "You can do this. I, I give you permission." I mean, the permission I'd been given in a contract sense, but I I did feel, oh, I don't have. I don't have, you know, that mental role, if you like, was was gone. And so I did set myself the task of figuring things out, of, I suppose, providing the framework to let innate talent grow properly, which isn't to say that I made, you know, perfect decisions at, at, at each point, but I, I was sort of conscious of that. But I, I think like many young writers you know the second novel syndrome is a is a is a thing i did a parachute jump many years ago and uh you know found it terrifying and exhilarating and all of that and then of course said oh you know i'm coming back next month to do my second jump and you know that next month passed and the month after that passed and 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 you know the instructor said you've got to come back and do it because otherwise you'll you people never do the second jump the second novel is a lot like the second parachute jump but it takes longer and it's harder and it's more frightening but you made it and you went on to, to, well, you have since gone on to make several more jumps. Yes, yes, I have. And I think what I now know is that each jump is is its own kind of terrifying. So, um, <laughs> so again, that's kind of liberating. You know, it's the, the difference is that you know you can do it. There are practical things that you know you can do. There are um, strategies that one tends to have. But, of course, any writer with ambition is going to, impose new here is something I want to try here is a new voice I want to try as a writer I don't want to just keep writing the first novel you talked earlier about Annie Dillard and following the thread which kind of suggests a significant role for intuition 
and discovery in the writing process. How do you see that against the more sort of schematic way of, of planning and envisioning a work in perhaps in slightly more abstract terms? Yeah, that's it's, it's interesting. I think the combination of instinct and organic process with framework and planning and process, you know, both are necessary and kind of necessary at different moments, I guess. But some of the things I've talked about in terms of understanding my own themes or um, the things that I keep returning to become clear to me quite late in the process and often, you know, revisiting works or, or, or sometimes with, with someone else saying, this is what your body of work is doing. And then, it, you, oh, yes. You either resist or you accept or you challenge or uh, debate. Uh, absolutely. Mm. But it's a, I think some suspension of that is necessary in order to write. I think in order to create a world, which is what any sort of novel is doing, you have to slightly um, put aside your intellectual chewing and froing. I think to analyse it too deeply can kind of pop the the air out of the out of the the magic that is the, you know the balloon is the metaphor I'm going for there. <laughs> you know, it's that idea that if um, if someone has therapy, then they ideally, if the therapy works, they are no longer driven by their um, weaknesses or, or, or difficulties in the same way. Well, actually, in a novel, you want to keep being driven. <laughs> so for me, those two things, this sort of, it's almost like the sort of adult self and the child self, this sort of adult, the sort of intellectual or editorial self who has a clear sense of this is what has to happen, this is the kind of shape we're after, that self is there, and then there is this sort of instinctive, feely, self and they they come it's not as clear as at the beginning fairly instinctive following the thread we'll just see what happens self and at the end the other one for me as far as I can articulate the the kind of way that process goes back and forth I often do have a, a kind of theme an idea that I want to explore there, there is often something that has kind of bitten me and I and and somewhere or another, I need to explore that. I'm not always conscious that that's what I want to explore. You know, I wasn't necessarily conscious when I wrote the fourth novel, Captain Starlight's Apprentice, that really what I was trying to explore was was belonging and home and 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 my own sense of uh, grief for two countries. You know, that 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 was a I couldn't acknowledge that. So there's that kind of sub feeling, and then there's some story however tenuous that that catches me you know some sense of i know that i want to write about this woman going on a, on a, a road trip to a flooded city with her family that's the story i don't have a lot else but that is sort of preceded by something in your sensibility which makes you receptive to that particular story when it's when it's incoming yes absolutely so my fifth novel which is about a woman who's the hostess of a christian shopping channel who takes her children on a mercy mission to a a city that's been flooded on the eve of a gay mardi gras and i am aware that every element of that sentence can offend someone um so that that sort of setup, I suppose, came to me not because I wanted to offend as many people as possible, but because clearly something in me wanted at that time 
to to really explore notions of hope actually rather than 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 faith but but that idea of where we where we place hope so you know it's like there's a it's like a layer cake that there's something there and i'm kind of looking or, or thinking about a story that will become the vehicle for the sort of thematic idea that I'm that I'm being nubbed by, that I'm being kept awake by, I'm being troubled by this theme at the moment. So that process happens. And then really often all I know is a I think this is unique to me. I don't know many other writers who have this particular thing, but I I usually know a sort of final moment. I have a final image in mind to various degrees of formation. It might not be a whole scene. It might just be a moment. Always a kind of a, an emotional sense of what I want that ending to be, you know, that, that okay, in this moment I, I, I have a sense that they're going to be all in a garden and, and everything is opened up. It might be as inarticulate as that. It's sort of goldy and jewels. It almost has to be a little bit unformed, but I have a sense of then all the um, the rest of the work of the novel has to sort of work towards this one moment. So I'm working on a novel at the moment. I have a really, really precise and clear, perfect image that is that is the final moment. That that's written. That's that's, and I suspect that that will be one which will be as it comes because everything everything else is about that that moment in a, in an odd way. So that's both. It, it makes some things easy and makes some things enormously difficult. You know, the writer friends talk about having, you know, they, they see the first image and then that gives birth to everything else. Um, and, yeah, mine is mine is the opposite. I have to strain to get not just to that image but to this particular feeling. I was talking to Catherine Heyman. You can find out more about the Faber Academy by visiting faberacademy.co.uk and you can follow the Academy on Twitter at Faber Academy. And you'll find out more about Catherine at her own website, katherinehayman.com. I hope you'll join me again soon for another podcast in this series. But from me, for now, thank you for listening and goodbye.